Hello and welcome to the fourth episode in a series that I'm doing on mimetic theory. I think it's really fitting that I'm talking about mimetic theory at this time because I am currently in the middle of a mimetic storm of sorts. Uh, the university that I work at has been shut down uh, and they've sent me home and along with the other lecturers and students because of protests that are happening on the campus that I work at. Uh, this is all to try and keep things safe, but this is the third protest of its kind in the last two years, and it's kind of weird, and I just see a lot of mimetic desire and not a lot of reasonability going along uh, with, with all these protests. So that's what I'm dealing with right now. So I think it's kind of fitting that um, we turn to look at the question of sacrifices and scapegoats, which is one of the things that Rene Girard writes about extensively, especially in his book, Violence and the Sacred, but also in his other work. Of course, the, the issue of sacrifices, ritual sacrifices, is something that we in, in our age find completely baffling and strange. Why, why did people do this in the ancient world? Why did people gather around and undergo some sort of ritual process and, and perform ritual killings? Gerard writes in Violence and the Sacred that sacrifice contains an element of mystery, and if all the pieties of classical humanists lull our curiosity to sleep, the company of the ancient authorities keeps it alert. When we take anthropology seriously and when we take ancient history seriously, we can start to understand that while sacrifice contains an element of mystery, it's definitely something that we shouldn't ignore because there is a fairly strong likelihood that it is something that goes on in even in the in the worlds of moderns, people like us, people who live more so-called sophisticated lives. So the company of ancient authorities keeps our awareness of this mystery alert. What is especially neglected when we look at sacrifice. And in fact, when, when we look even at, at anthropology's accounts on sacrifice is that the relationship between sacrifice and violence is often somehow kept at a distance. We don't often see that there is a relationship between sacrifice and violence. So the question arises, why was sacrifice not equated with violence by the ancients? If you want an example of ritual sacrifice, uh, you can look at the Ammonites, I think, for a very good example. It's a good example, but it is disturbing. Uh, the Ammonites existed during the Bronze Age, and they offered their children to the idol of the god Moloch. The god um, had the body of a man and the head of a lion. And the idol's hands were outstretched and heated, and the firstborn child of any family would be placed in the hands of this idol god to be burnt to death. Drums would then be played very loudly so that the parents of the child couldn't hear its scream. This is a, an alarming sort of a scene to, to think about. Um, people making a lot of noise, getting up into a frenzy and sacrificing their own children. Now, this sacrifice of children took place in a, a place called Gehenna, also known as the Hinnom Valley, which the Bible tells us is, is well, at least as contemporary translations of that place go, this is referred to as hell. 
So when you think of hell and images of hell in so you, you kind of get a picture of of what it embodies at least what it symbolizes rather than embodies it it's a place of sacrificing children to an angry god this should i think give us pause to question where we get our ideas about hell and whether jesus was really recommending this as a as a kind of a torment for for people who had sinned uh, one picture we get of Moloch is is actually in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 35, where it it says that they built, they, these are the Ammonites, they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I, that is God speaking, never commanded this, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing. So the God of the Israelites the God of Jeremiah who writes this, found this practice barbaric. So there is something about Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, that that makes God cringe. Maybe Gehenna is not God's idea. So this, this seems completely weird and barbaric to us. Of course it does. So why do such a thing? There are other examples from other cultures um, of this kind of sacrificial process. For example, the mountaintop in the Peloponnese region in Greece is the earliest known site where Zeus was worshipped. And quite a few ancient sources, including Plato, suggest that it was a place where human sacrifices took place. From at least the 16th century BC until just after the time of Alexander the Great, tens of thousands of animals were killed there in the god's honour. But also, as as archaeologists have recently discovered, they've found human remains. So people were killed. Why uh, it's significant to look at ancient Greece as well for, for images of, of sacrifice is that the, the Greeks had this idea of what they called the pharmacon. And the pharmacon was, it's a very interesting word because it means both cure and poison. So there's this idea around ritual sacrifice that it cures society, it cures the, cures the relationship between people and the gods, but it is also a poison, it is also a kind of sickness that you are killing, you are murdering in the name of the gods. So there are different kinds of ritual sacrifice when you look at anthropology. Obviously you get the most extreme form of sacrifice would be human sacrifice, Ammonites, Aztecs, ancient Greeks, Celtic Druids, uh, various peoples across the globe performed human sacrifice. But then there were other kinds of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, Jewish uh, people, ancient Israelites, Muslim, Hindu uh, sacrifices. There are also animal sacrifices there. And then there are plant sacrifices or grain sacrifices. And I remember a couple of years ago when I, I went to Thailand, I saw that grain sacrifice, which could be putting a, a can of Coca-Cola on, on a sort of a pedestal by an idol, that, that would be a way of, of worshipping the God or appeasing the God or saying thanks to a God. So grain sacrifices are more sort of, I suppose, today we would associate them with superstition, but in some ways they're, they're still going on. And what usually happens is that sacrifice is explained through a story or a myth. The, the basic idea that we get is that the gods demanded this sacrifice. This is quite well played out in the film The Clash of the Titans, which was released in 2010. It's a really terrible film, uh, but, but it, it still conveys this idea. 
very strongly. So there's a, I think it's a princess, if I remember it correctly. She is going to be sacrificed to the Kraken. Why is she being sacrificed to the Kraken? Well, the gods, specifically Hades, seem to demand that this sacrifice takes place. Gerard writes in Violence and the Sacred that the sacrificial process requires a certain degree of misunderstanding. Uh, he actually uses the word méconnaissance. Uh, it's a French word which I'm probably mispronouncing. It basically means misrecognition. It's uh, a failure to see what's really going on. So sacrif the sacrificial process requires a certain degree of this failure to see what is really going on. And Gerard continues. He, ri he writes, The celebrants do not and must not comprehend the role of the sacrificial act. The, the theological basis of the sacrifice has a crucial role in fostering this misunderstanding. It is the God who supposedly demands the victims. He alone, in principle, savors the smoke from the altars and requisitions the slaughtered flesh. And you do get some kind of a, a, a mirror image of what is going on in ancient ritual sacrifice in biblical stories. So, for instance, Gerard writes about the Bible's account of Cain and Abel. He says that the Bible offers us no background on the two brothers except the bare fact that Cain is a tiller of the soil who gives the fruits of his labors to God, whereas Abel is a shepherd who regularly sacrifices the firstborn of his herds. So what this kind of a story uh, gives us a picture of is, is the sense that God wants this sacrifice. But another story challenges this interpretation, which I will get to in a bit. There, there seems to be a sense even in the story of Cain and Abel that God is somewhat incidental to what is going on. The focus of the story is much more on Cain's violence against Abel than on God's demand of a sacrifice. So what we have here is two things. We have sacrifice, which is this ritual process, and then we have myth, which is the explanation for why this ritual process should take place. But there are myths that we find that actually challenge this idea that a God demands the sacrifice or has demanded the sacrifice. There are myths that actually try to overcome this misrecognition. The first countermyth that I want to look at is the story of Jacob and Esau. These are twin brothers. Uh, it's a biblical story. And in this story, Jacob dupes his blind father, Isaac, into giving him the birthright or the blessing that should have belonged to Esau. And how Jacob does this, how Jacob dupes his father, is he disguises himself by firstly wearing the skin or skins of a dead, sacrificed kid goat and Secondly, by bringing a savory meat dish to his father. So in two ways, you've got this Jacob being protected by a dead animal. Here he takes refuge in the skin of this dead animal, but he also takes refuge in a sense in, in the savory meat dish. So what Gerard writes is that the kids, the in other words, the sacrificed animals, serve in two different ways to dupe the father, or in other terms, to divert from the son the violence that should have been directed toward him. So in this counter-myth, in this story of Jacob and Esau, the sacrifice is not to avert the wrath of the gods, the supernatural in a way, but to divert the wrath of the father. It's the human problem that needs to be dealt with, not the divine problem. So the wrath 
of the father in this story only partially counters the myth. It doesn't completely expose what's going on, but it hints to the fact that that there is not an angry God who is demanding the sacrifice. There is an illusion that people have bought into, rather, that the angry God demands a sacrifice. In ancient Greece, in ancient Greek culture, you get the story of Odysseus and the Cyclops, and this is also a countermyth. So Gerard writes in, in Violence and the Sacred, he says, In this story, Odysseus and his shipmates are shut up in the Cyclops' cave. Every day the giant devours one of the crew. The survivors finally manage to blind their tormentor with a flaming stake. Mad with pain and anger, which is understandable, the Cyclops bars the entrance of the, the cave to prevent to prevent the men from escaping. However, he lets pass his flock of sheep, which go out daily to pasture. In a gesture reminiscent of the blind Isaac, the Cyclops runs his hand over the back of each sheep as it leaves the cave to make sure that it carries no passenger. Odysseus, however, has outwitted his captor, and he rides to freedom by clinging to the thick wool on the underside of the rams. I love this image. It's so bizarre, like people escaping by riding underneath sheep. But it's it's still, the purpose of the story is not for us to question how factual it is, but to alert us to the fact that these men are being saved by animals, specifically animals that are typically used in sacrificial rituals. Again, here in this story, the sacrifice, which is symbolized by the sheep, is not to avert the wrath of supernatural gods, but to avert the anger of the Cyclops, who symbolizes the imminent, the human. And the Cyclops is blind, just as Isaac is blind. They cannot see, the human element in the story cannot see that it is not the gods who want to sacrifice. It is their own anger that needs to be appeased. And I'm going to come back to this again uh, as we walk through this theory, uh, probably in the next episode, because it's very important for what mimetic theory is actually telling us. Looking be beyond myth, we find that ritual sacrifice shares a very particular structure. The many, that is the collective, they, they focus their rage or their guilt or their devotion onto one or a minority or a small group of people but let's let's just simplify it and just say the many exact wrath their anger their aggression on the one the victim of of this ritual sacrifice but this collective focus on the one is of course a mimetic desire it is a desire that is shared by the collective that gets channeled onto one Per person, a focal point of this collective mimetic desire. And when you look at the structure of the sacrifice, this ritual sacrifice, you can see that ritual sacrifice actually mirrors or mimics the process of scapegoating. Scapegoating is a really important concept in mimetic theory. It's the idea that it's very easy for people to collect around a shared desire, to, to group around a shared desire, and then to actually target their rage, their anger, their guilt, their aggression against one, to scapegoat someone. And you can see this really clearly in a story that is written about Apollonius of Tyana. Apollonius was a contemporary of Jesus and Paul, so we're 
dealing with an ancient text. And his biographer, Philostratus, that's the name of his biographer, very strange uh, name to call your kid. But anyway, his biographer, Philostratus, in an attempt to set Apollonius up as a rival of Jesus, describes this Neo-Pythagorean philosopher as a miracle worker who cured the sick and raised the dead. And just to show his readers why Apollonius is better than Jesus, he tells a story about this terrible epidemic that happens in Ephesus and the consequences of this epidemic and certainly what Apollonius does to intervene into this epidemic. So what happens is there's a plague, um, which I just mentioned. There's a terrible epidemic and the Ephesians cannot get rid of it. So what they do is they turn to Apollonius, a Neo-Pythagorean philosopher. I want to mention here that this Ephesus is definitely the same Ephesus that Paul writes to, uh, writes the book of Ephesians to. And the story that I'm about to tell you, I think is amazing because it reveals myth in the process of failing. So myth is the thing that always tells us that a God demands a sacrifice, but here we start to see that maybe that is not what is going on. So I'm quoting from the ancient text um, that, that writes about Apollonius. Take courage, for today I will put a stop to the course of the disease, Apollonius told them. And with these words, he led the whole population of Ephesians to the theater where the image of Hercules is now set up. And there he saw what seemed to be an old beggar artfully blinking his eyes as if blind. The beggar carried a wallet and a crust of bread in it, and he was dressed in rags and had a very rugged appearance. Apollonius therefore gathered the Ephesians around him and said, Pick up as many stones as you can and hurl them at this enemy. Now initially the Ephesians wondered what he meant and were shocked at the idea of murdering such a miserable looking stranger, for he was begging them all to take mercy on him. Nevertheless, Apollonius insisted that the Ephesians attack the man and not let him go. As soon as some of them began to take shots at him with their stones, the beggar, who had seemed to blink and be blind, gave them a sudden glance and showed that his eyes were full of fire. Then the Ephesians recognized that he was a demon, and they stoned him so thoroughly that their stones were heaped up high around him. After a little pause, Apollonius asked the people to remove the stones and acquaint themselves with the wild animal that they had slain. When they had exposed the object of their scorn, they found that he had disappeared and that instead of him there was a hound who resembled a dog, but one that was as big as a lion. There he lay before their eyes, pounded into a pulp by their stones and vomiting foam, as mad dogs do. Accordingly, the statue of the averting god Hercules has been set up over the spot where the ghost was slain. This is a really disturbing story, but it it describes something that very likely did happen. And you see here, there's this confusion. People don't want to stone this beggar, but then they, they sort of give it a shot because there is a plague. Now, what a plague is symbolic of in mimetic theory and often in in ancient texts, Plague is symbolic of what is known as sacrificial crisis, where everyone is caught up in a kind of terrible rivalry, 
a rivalry that is perpetually escalating. And this sacrificial crisis needs to be dealt with. People need a catharsis. And so what happens here in the story is that they exact their wrath, their anger, their aggression, this, this escalating rivalry on this one poor beggar. And it produces exactly the catharsis that the people feel they need. And afterwards, they feel so relieved that they realize there must be some sort of divine hand in this act. The divinity is here. And so that's why they set up the statue of the so-called averting God, Hercules, to basically say thanks to Hercules for saving them. But Hercules does not seem to be demanding the death of this man. It seems that this man was arbitrarily chosen. And so the story talks about the fact that he looked like a hound who resembled a dog after he'd been beaten to a pulp. But he'd been stoned so thoroughly that his human form had been distorted. And people looked for, afterwards, reasons for saying that what they had done was the right thing. That he really was a demon that deserved to be killed. So what a scapegoat is, is a human or animal victim or sacrifice that is chosen to carry off or embody at first the misfortunes and diseases of people, but later the sin and guilt of a community. This is what we learn from anthropology and, and the story of our humanness, how we've developed. There is, there is a sense in which scapegoats were chosen to carry off or embody the misfortunes and diseases of people, the plagues, like this one in, in the story of Apollonius of Tyana. But later on, it actually shifts and the scapegoat becomes the, th the thing or the person or the animal that carries our human guilt away. What happens here in all of this is that group cohesion, which is the shared mimetic desire of the majority, is focused on expelling, sacrificing, or murdering the one, the one that is perceived as the enemy. But this one is an enemy simply because they are the minority. They don't fit in with the rule of the majority. And this act of expelling, sacrificing, or murdering the scapegoat brings about a kind of peace to the group. And what myth does is it sets up a picture that this act of scapegoating, this act of sacrificing a victim, is actually the right thing to do. So it creates this picture that the gods wanted this, the victim deserved this, the sacrifice is what is required by the gods to preserve peace and well-being. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Ritual sacrifice is a really strange phenomenon especially to, to the modern mind. But this pattern, this pattern of the majority versus the minority or the group versus the individual is just as prevalent today as it was in the ancient world. Misrecognition remains, although I think misrecognition is not necessarily covered up by myth as it was in the ancient world, but it is covered up by ideology, by the way that the collective mind orders its its beliefs signs of scapegoating can be named i think there are, there are four key signs of scapegoating the first sign is that those who participate in scapegoating don't know what they're doing they don't realize that they're actually scapegoating the second 
sign of scapegoating is that the scapegoat is seen as absolutely evil and guilty and in fact is the reason why the group is not doing so well so just as as the in the story of apollonius of tyana that the beggar who was killed was seen as the reason why things weren't going very well in ephesus although i just just as an aside when someone is scapegoated or chucked out of a group and and told that they are the problem the group unifies in a way around that mimetic desire and in a sense then the scapegoat becomes the reason why the group is coherent and functioning donald trump's rhetoric is the rhetoric of scapegoating unfortunately donald trump too has become a scapegoat especially for democrats so there's this the sense that donald trump is the problem well he is probably a problem but he creates the sense of unity for democrats that maybe they they don't get in other ways the third sign of scapegoating is that defeating the scapegoat becomes a cause of celebration because there is this feeling that justice has been done that the scapegoat deserved to die or be expelled or be cast away the fourth sign of scapegoating is that the group is righteous and without fault the group is absolutely right in doing what they are doing and the fifth sign of scapegoating is that the group can do terrible things to the scapegoat because the group is without fault it has good reasons for doing so so the group can actually act in fairly immoral ways but those immoral ways are actually viewed by the group as the right thing to do this is about justice and this seems so incredibly primitive to us when we when we look at what goes on in the story of apollonius of tyana we are appalled and disgusted but maybe this isn't so primitive uh, one of the things that c.s lewis points out which i think is so brilliant is that this phenomenon called chronological snobbery which is where we think that just because we're further along down the timeline we think we're automatically better than than people who lived long ago and maybe this is true in some ways but i think that sometimes we are blinded by our own ideologies into thinking that we are better than we really are so let's look at the judicial system and let's look at the characteristics of scapegoating and ask ourselves if maybe the judicial system doesn't often resemble a scapegoating process the first characteristic of a scapegoat is that those who scapegoat don't know what they're doing. They don't see that what they're doing is not really about justice, but is about something else, some other sort of visceral, embodied, unconscious need that we, we, we have to actually get rid of people for the sake of our own peace of mind and unity. The second thing is that the scapegoat is absolutely guilty and evil and the judicial system is so good at just at just point, painting the picture of people as completely guilty or completely innocent no one is you know the the verdict is hardly ever well you're sort of guilty but we can leave you or let you off the hook that that won't work the third aspect of scapegoating is that defeating the scapegoat is a cause for celebration when someone especially in the media you know when someone who's committed some atrocious crime gets found guilty and gets sentenced to life in prison or in certain places in the world uh, the death sentence gets handed out to them people feel cause for celebration america celebrated so much when osama 
bin Laden was killed. And there is a really big question that that raised for me about whether that seemed in any way like a just thing. And I, I realize, you know, Osama bin Laden was not a great character. But I think justice was not the issue. Just the question of whether it was the just thing to do was definitely not the issue. Uh, the fourth aspect of scapegoating is that the group, the, the nation or the law, is righteous and without fault. The law cannot be flawed. It must be the person who is subject to the law. And the fifth thing is that the group or the nation or the law can do terrible things to the scapegoat because it is without fault. It has good reasons for doing so. The judicial system in mimetic theory is easily regarded as a religious ritual. It is um, something that follows the same pattern as scapegoating violence. And it looks to us like justice, but it is punitive and not about rest restoration. It is in fact not at all about justice, largely speaking, in terms of the way that judicial systems are, are structured. I'm thinking particularly of the American ju judicial system because I think there are countries in the world that are trying to trying to create a much more uh, much more restorative judicial process, and I think that's definitely going to be on the right track. But punishment is equated with justice in a lot of judicial systems, and I think this is a this is a myth. Punishment is not justice because often the people that have committed crimes have already been hard done by by society, and and to be punished after having committed crimes because of their deficit existence, they get pushed further down and diminished as individuals. So we need to be very careful. And, and I think this really great essay by Robert Cover, which is called Violence and the Word, actually exposes some of the injustice that can exist in the judicial system. Robert Cover actually points out that there is a link between legal hermeneutics and violence. He says that merely interpreting the law sets up violence because to judge a criminal is to restrict the freedoms of that criminal and it is to cause him to lose his property, his children and even his life. And to judge a, or incarcerate a criminal is often to rob a family of a loved one or a breadwinner. It doesn't of course mean that the whole judicial system is inherently and totally wrong but what I'm trying to get at is that the justice system often fails to take systemic problems into account and it certainly fails to take into account the mimetic nature of desire. As with ritual sacrifice, the judicial system essentially cures by allowing what it prohibits. Uh, in, in ritual sacrifice, even murder is allowed. I mean, that's why it's you, you, ritual killings are undergone. and and this happens in judicial processes too, that, that the death penalty is fine as long as the person killed is being killed by the state. So participants in sacrifice and in legal systems believe that they are firstly revenging an, an appalling offense against the whole community, secondly expelling a contaminating evil from their midst, and thirdly obeying a divine or holy mandate. This divine mandate may come from the state, for example, but it is felt as divine. It is felt as a transcendent thing. The judicial system seeks to curb mimetic violence, but it does this by creating controlled revenge. It insists on punishing the guilty. There is 
hardly any room in a lot of judicial systems for actually letting people go. It creates an, a neat rationalization, a kind of mythology, which is drenched in the logic of retribution. So what I think is going on is that society remains drenched in the so-called logic of the violent sacred. It is drenched in the logic of ritual sacrifice. It's the same logic we find in bullying. It's the same logic we find in trolling, which are all reliant on scapegoating. People are consistently, even today, searching for scapegoats. People are often looking for someone to blame for their fractured sense of reality. This is the structure that we've been working with. There is a ma majority and there is a minority. And the difference between these two is often more of a matter of mimetic desire than it is a matter of right and wrong. What Girard notices when he looks at ancient cultures is that mimetic desire sets up a narrative. And I've tried to cover a little bit of this narrative, but here I'm going to just lay it out really quickly. First, desire is always borrowed. Second, desire leads to rivalry. Third, this rivalry escalates and this causes an escalation of violence, an escalation that revolves around dyads, namely one group versus another. Fourthly, this escalation leads to a sacrificial crisis, a an escalation of rivalrous violent desires. And this revolves around a shared desire. This shared desire often shifts into accusation mode and both sides start to point fingers at the scapegoat, at someone who can take the blame for their terrible plight, their plague, their unrest, their dis-ease. The fifth thing that happens in this process, this this after this escalation and after a scapegoat process is that or a process and after the process of choosing a scapegoat is that the scapegoat is killed and disposed of and peace is somehow miraculously achieved because the evil the so-called evil that the group has identified has been expelled or done away with and this peace is so miraculous that the mob that has enacted this violent thing believes that the gods have saved them and also the victim that has been killed in a lot of anthropology the victim is often deified so the gods as people this mob sees sees it need to be appeased by a repetition of the same process of ritual sacrifice and as we've looked at here the sacrificial process is concealed by myth ritual and taboo but this does raise a question. If this process is concealed, then how is it that it has been brought to light? How do we know about this? Gerard makes a stunning claim in response to this question. He says that it is Christianity and especially the Gospels that make the violence of this process apparent. Christianity ultimately is something that saves us from mimetic violence. And I'm going to leave you on that cliffhanger and say that this is exactly what I'm going to start to look at in the next episode. So thank you so much for joining me. I, I think you'll be able to see by now that this is where things start to get really interesting. And I hope you will join me in the next episode for some more on mimetic theory.
Bye for now.